Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. How many of you can point to one person in your life who totally changed the course of a significant part of your life? I can think of a number of people who spoke something into my life that dramatically affected my life for the good. My college roommate, Ted Platter, inspired me to dream bigger. One person whose life made a huge difference in my life. My dad taught me that until God speaks, the last thing you heard that God wants you to do still stands. So be faithful where you are and persist in the face of setback and God will take care of the rest. One person whose life made a huge difference in my life. Now, today we gather to celebrate that we're coming through this pandemic. To my knowledge, the people at Quest have been spared, though some have known family or friends who have had it and some who have even died. So for them, we stand together today and we grieve with them. Today, we celebrate that God has a good plan coming out the other end of this pandemic to help each one of us move forward with greater peace and stronger families and, yes, even the financial provision and blessing we need. Today, we gather and celebrate the fact that our front parking lot will be done later this week. I will also give a huge shout out to the team of people who have redone so much of our landscape and are still finishing that project up due to the generous donations of some who gave above their normal giving because they just wanted to make things nicer around here. And though we gather to celebrate, on many levels, we continue to grieve today, not just because of the loss and unknown of the pandemic, but for the murder of George Floyd and the pain and loss and confusion that has erupted around that this last couple of weeks. It has brought so many feelings to the surface, so many questions, so many disillusioning thoughts as we wonder, how can things be this bad? How can things ever be better? And where is God in all of this? Now, some of you may feel weary of hearing about this because we've been over this. We know you, there needs to be change. But as I listened to a friend's friend, an older black pastor, share this past week, he said, if we're one in the spirit, then when I hurt, you hurt. But I don't hear you saying, ouch. And Wendy and I were privileged to sit with a friend who happens to be black and just listen to his experiences of racial discrimination this past week. As we were listening to his stories of regularly being beat up as a child, pulled over by cops in situations in which I would never even consider that to be a possibility, of discrimination in the school, in the church, and in friendships, and in dating. As I was listening, I was beginning to estimate how many times in his life he's experienced discrimination based just on the stories he's telling us. Now, telling things up like that might be weird for you, but for me, anytime I hear patterns in life, my mind immediately starts churning out estimating frequency and patterns. It left me thinking this guy in his 30s, has experienced blatant racial discrimination by police, neighbors, classmates, church people, school leaders, and others hundreds of times. I'm not talking about, I wonder if that might have been discrimination, but I'm not really sure kinds of circumstances. I'm talking blatant, clear racial discrimination. And that estimation only includes the stories he told us, which he said those stories were only scratching the surface. So as I listened to his stories, I could feel my heart changing trying to fully connect to that pain, the anger, the emotion of his experience, well, it's impossible. Though even in my feeble attempt to try to imagine what that must have felt like is a really horrible feeling. It was in the painful, angry aftermath of one of those blatant, infuriating times as an older teen that this man's mom said, don't retaliate because if you do, you will become the monster they think you are. 
Instead, use that energy and turn it outward in love toward them and others in a way that is powerful and beautiful. And in response, he went out and bought presents for all the people who had just treated him with such painful racial prejudice. I mean, talk about choosing to live in the opposite spirit. Today is one of the kindest men I know. The power of one voice, the voice of his mom in that moment, shaped this man's life to this day. Today we continue our One Big Story series and we look at Josiah who in a time of deep darkness and, and tremendous sin, the rich oppressing the poor, racial prejudice, cultural breakdown and chaos, stepped forward and led reform against all odds. The power of one life. And sure, Josiah was a king, so you might think his life automatically had positional power. So you may also think, I can't relate to that. But honestly, when you understand his story, you quickly come to the conclusion that his positional power wasn't the essential ingredient to his greatest accomplishments. And in fact, his position was actually holding him back as much as anything. Rather, it was his willingness to use his voice and live his life with clarity for what was right, even when the vast majority of the people were set in their ways against what he did. So king or not, he's an example to all of us of the power of a single life to stand up with the clarity only God can give and bring positive change. The question God is asking each of us today is, do you want your life to be that kind of life that brings positive change to all you touch? And how in this time of pandemic fear, cultural and economic stress, do we want to stand up and become voices for God's goodness, reconciliation and love? So we left off last week in one big story with King Manasseh, starting the bringing the nation of Judah to an all time low, spiritually, morally, politically and nationally. When Manasseh died, his son Amon became king and followed the worst of his dad's behavior. Assassinated two years later, Josiah, Amon's eight-year-old son, becomes king of Judah. Now, how many people listening now are between seven and nine years old? Now, if I were to ask you seven to nine-year-olds listening, what do you think about each day? Would your answer be playing games and hanging out with friends, goofing off, maybe if you have time, maybe helping with a chore or two at home? Or would you say... I think about being president of the United States and plan to win the election this fall. Josiah, king, at eight years old. So think about Josiah's upbringing. His grandfather, Manasseh, had taken Judah and evil pagan practices like no king had done before. Tradition notes the streets of Jerusalem ran red with many political enemies being publicly murdered. Manasseh even threw at least one of his own sons, one of Josiah's uncles, into the fire as a human sacrifice to the demons. Manasseh tried to destroy every copy of the Bible, and in response, a couple of priests secretly hid a copy of the Bible in the temple so as to preserve at least one copy. Amen, his dad is no better and is assassinated. Now think about the emotional impact of living in that family, wondering if you were next to be thrown into the fire. This is the childhood of Josiah. The Jewish historical writings outside the Bible indicate Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, and his dad, Amon, were weak leaders, controlled largely by the evil nobility. So Josiah comes to power with that same evil nobility and power. The odds are stacked against him. Some of you have grown up with the odds stacked against you. For Josiah, the system was designed to keep him in line with what the evil controlling nobility wanted. And yet what we see instead is this eight-year-old king rose above the spiritual and moral emptiness at home. He didn't succumb to the anti-God attitudes and godless choices of his nation's leaders. He rose above peer pressure. Josiah swam against the current of his day. To anyone of us who is feeling confused or frustrated or maybe even hopeless about what's going on in our world right now, Josiah shows us your life can and does count. 
There are four quick things we see in Josiah's life that form the bedrock of how he was able to do just that. First, you choose wholehearted devotion to God. Josiah was wholehearted, which means holding nothing back. That can be intimidating for any of us. I mean, who can do that? I'll always have a divided heart. But for Josiah and all of us, wholehearted devotion to God needs to be the highest ideal we pursue. Because wholeheartedness is genuine. It's not pretending. It's passionate. It's zealous. Wholeheartedness toward God is single-minded in its pursuit with no reservations, no compromises, and no excuses. Verse 3 of Second Chronicles 34 shows us that in the eighth year of his reign, so when he turned 16, old enough to get his driver's license, Josiah began to seek God. His devotion to the Lord increased so much that historians made record of it for us. By his 20th birthday, his character had been so shaped by his devotion to God that he instituted a nationwide spiritual and moral reform. Now, it's interesting to note, at first, all Josiah had for guidance to seek and know God was the memories of what was passed down verbally to the high priest and prophets of God in Israel at that time. Even without the Bible, which hadn't been rediscovered yet, Josiah realized it, com- it was completely reasonable that if there's one God who created everything, that nothing makes sense unless you know him and live the way he created things to be. But then at age 26, while the workers were repairing the temple, they discovered the hidden copy of the Bible. Josiah immediately read it. Upon realizing how far the, the, he and the people had fallen away from God, he tore his clothes in grief over how wicked he and all of Judah and Israel had been, and he repented, immediately calling all the elders of Israel together and personally reading the Bible to them. Josiah's zeal for the word directed the rest of his life. What role does God's truth play in your life? Does zeal for God's word, does truth consume your life? Is that what drives you to act and bring change? Or is it your own feelings or the feelings of the crowd or the beliefs of others or your political party or your family or the people who taught you? See, unless we look at all the pain, anger, destruction, and divisiveness that is present in our culture in light of wholehearted devotion to God and his word, we will not find answers to the confusion and questions we face today in our culture. In fact, those questions will only become bigger and more confusing and more enraging. And I think that's what we clearly see happening in our culture, especially in the last decade or so. Truth, answers at last, are only found in the light of God's loving truth and ways. Second, Josiah teaches us you surround yourself with wise followers of God. As you read the few chapters that tell us of Josiah's life, you quickly see Josiah chose as his main advisors, Hilkiah the high priest, Huldah a prophetess, and the prophets Jeremiah and Zephaniah, both with books of the Bible that bear their name. Young people, for that matter, anyone listening, God has called you to lead. But who you surround yourself with in terms of mentors will determine the effectiveness of your leadership. Even without the Bible, these godly men and women had tremendous impact on Josiah. Third, Josiah teaches us how we cultivate that commitment to be devoted to God. You weave specific spiritual habits into your life that keep you on the path toward God. In 2 Chronicles 34.2 uses the phrase, Josiah walked in the ways of David. That's talking about a lifestyle. In other words, his pursuit of God wasn't an on again, off again. It, it wasn't expressed just when he went to worship on weekends. Josiah wove specific habits into the rhythms of his day that kept him on a path of holiness and tuned his heart to the Lord. 
See, the ways of David are easy to discern from David's writing. A devotion to the word of God, to prayer, to fasting, to regularly worshiping of God, to be honest with our sins before God and people, to taking our emotions to God and letting God interpret and direct them instead of letting our emotions rule us. These are the frequent themes of David's writings. These were the regular practices of Josiah's life, and these need to form the bedrock of our lives as followers of Jesus. And finally, Josiah teaches us, you do what you know. See, without the Bible, Josiah didn't know a lot for 18 years of his reign. He was already 10 years into seeking God and six years into major reform before he even had answers from the Bible as to how God wanted him to live. Sometimes we allow ourselves to be paralyzed from moving forward because of the questions and the problems of life that seem so big and we don't feel like we have all the answers. But all throughout the Bible and in Josiah's life, we see that God always gives more truth and more answers when we first live out the answers we already have. So live what you know now with wholehearted devotion to God. Start now, which leads us to the question of, what do we know we can do to bring healing and hope? For example, in response to the injustice done in Minneapolis and the, and the feelings and the history of abuse and racism and injustice. So one thing we can do is listen. Now, I'm so excited that you get to listen to Mike and Carly Price. They are some of the most intentional, purpose-filled people I know when it comes to growing as individuals, encouraging other people, and the way they build relationships. I'm so thrilled that you get to listen on, on a, a little nine-minute segment from a rough cut of a two-hour conversation we had with them about racism and facing it. Because I was thinking when you emailed me that question, and I'm just like... Man, what crazy experience. And then they started coming up, you know, third grade and then the relationship in high school and then college with the hate letters, you know, slid in the door. You know, on those road trips, we would get pulled over all the time. I'd wake up and we were pulled over on the side of my life and just go back to sleep. Nothing would happen, you know, but I would sit there in the back seat. I'm always behind them. And my sister and my brother, and we're sitting in the back. And sometimes my grandma would be with us and we're pulled over. And I wake up and we're sitting there and the lights are flashing. And that could have been an experience, you know, but why are we always pulled over every time we go to Pennsylvania? But it was never my dad getting pulled out of the car, none of that. Music was down, he'd smile and laugh and, and do his thing, you know, but it wasn't this many rules. Two hands on here, have your spouse reach for, it wasn't all those rules. He'd lean over, grab, boom, smile, polite, they met at the at a meeting point, you know, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and that's how I interact. I try to already diffuse the situation. And again, that's it, should I have to do that every time? You know, it's like it's scary. My heart is like boom, boom, boom. But music's down, windows, you know, windows are down, and I'm diffusing. I know that yeah. officer is just as scared as I am, so I'm going to do my part. My goal is to get home or go to jail in one piece, not prove a point right now, you know? So, and I think that every single time, so. I'm like, Mike, you say that like you should expect it. And he's just so yeah. fluid about it. He's like, no, like we knew every time that we visited my aunt and uncle, we were gonna get pulled yeah. over. And it hurts my heart to think that like that's normal, but I think that's why he doesn't, he doesn't feel like he's ever really been jaded because he's always reacted so positively and he's, he's learned his dad's mm -hmm. demeanor. You know, I had a different talk with my son last week that I will have when he gets his license. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So, like I told him, you know, just kind of digest it. I know I threw a lot at you, but at the same time, I didn't want to scare him of police officers. He has great relationships with police officers here and now. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't show him the video or anything like that. I just showed the image, you know, and um, that's when it kind of hit. And he said, well, why would they do that? And I said, I said you know, there's just evil people. You know, evil mm-hmm. people, he got the wrong job. Um, and he just laid back, you know, at 11 years old, just laid back and it hit him. And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, I'm by myself and I'm like, this is, okay, this is it. And I said, you got any questions? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. And I said, are you scared? Yeah, a little bit. I said, well, what are you scared of? And he just didn't know. So are you worried about me? Are you worried about Pat Pat? Are you worried about Uncle PJ? Like, what? He's like, I don't know. A grown man yelling for his mom. If you don't feel that, you you just you're not human. I don't. I I'm, I'm sorry. Um, at that point, it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with human. Like that is. It's a human issue. It's that, a hard that's issue. insane. That's what got me. You know, when I saw that quote. This man was just screaming for his mom and everything hurts. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. Um, but then, you know, on the other side of it, I look at his daughter and she said, my dad changed the world. And so that's the. Uh, yeah. The good vision of the pictures is what gets me going more than all that. I mean, I love seeing the videos of front line of the officers and the front line of the protesters and they're hugging. I mean, that's what I like to see. You know, know, a lot of it's got to just be genuine stuff. And right now it's going to be hard to differentiate that, you know, so I really feel like we just all got to kind of sit back and let this all soak in and you know, have an action plan. He called called me at work and was like, "How much do you How much do you think it would cost to buy all the police officers pizza on protest day?" You take on such a piece of like, let's be such an example that like his first thought was, "I need to let these police officers know they're safe with me." You're always going to have problems, but I'm tired of dealing with the same exact problems. We should be talking instead of out marching. And, and that's what I think the elevation does with that, you know, with the rioting and the, and the high anger at first was we we tried, you know, with the knee mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it didn't happen. And now we're angry. You know, this is the third one. You know, we had the runner and then they forgot about the lady in Louisville that was in her own bed, sleep and shot multiple times. And they were looking for a suspect and she's dead. And then this. So it's literally within three weeks and nothing. And so that's why the explosion. It's like we are dealing with the same stuff and we can't do it by ourselves. It's it takes the human race as one. Well. Yeah. And that was what was refreshing to me to see the pictures and the the videos of oh my gosh, there's almost more white people out here than black people. What's the best things we could do to help? It's it's just action and support and it really is not seeing us differently it's, it's seeing us as human how would you mm-hmm. treat your your best friend your family member a distant relative you know that's really what it is we're, mm-hmm. we're distant relatives mm-hmm. communication people need to be comfortable to ask questions black people need Empathy. to be comfortable answering, answering questions. questions 
needs to be like because divided we have nothing like if people are scared and making assumptions we make no progress and be able to talk and listen to each other and understand that the words still are going to come out wrong but we have to keep in mind like people are trying mm -hmm. like don't dissect every single word like mike said the other day is like people have to stop being so scared to mess up because if the intention is good People can tear you down, but people who know your heart will have your back. The hard part is we have to make it okay to ask questions because that's the only way people will know how to proceed with respect. He's like, I remember in school the D.A.R.E. program mm -hmm. and having my favorite police officer. And he's like, I feel like there are little boys that look the way I looked who don't have that now. And so... He's been calling the mayor of his hometown and they're setting up to look at what it's going to look like to get law enforcement back in school systems. You said it's been really hurtful and painful what some Christians have said and made it difficult. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah. Mine, I don't even know if he's aware of, is just seeing how somebody who has been in of the faith a long time is taking the stance of, this is what black people always do. They always act like they're owed something for what their ancestors went through and they're taking advantage and they're making comments on the riots of like, here they go again, they're tearing things up. And I've seen people post about like, you know, they were happy to receive their stimulus check and now they've got to rough things up again. And I'm watching at, you know, people don't realize the power that, you know, each of us have. And I may not be a celebrity or, but in your own community, you represent your personal brand. And if one day you are inviting someone to Sunday school or to be in the pew next to you and the next day, you're taking such a radical stance, I have a problem with that. I just think that there's a lot to be said for somebody who claims to be a Christian to carry that with pride mm -hmm. and to really execute how they react to things to be an example and a standing invitation to know anybody can approach your religion. And I think as Christians, we have to be really careful about making generalized statements in general, mm -hmm. saying they or them or black people. And I think mine, I pray for the president, the people around them. I pray for the individuals and, you know, um, involved in the case. I pray for the parents, the family of, of, of uh, Floyd, and I pray for everyone involved. And you will hear some Chris say that they did do that, and some Christians are saying, no, we shouldn't pray for them, you know. Um, and I get it, because it's like I said, you have to let this really sink in. Can you really forgive? And I think everyone's faith is at a different... My faith is a little bit not as as high as an understanding verses and things like that but my i know there's something bigger than it i know there's something stronger than us um with, with the higher will so i'm willing to do what i know in, in my process right now with my face faith is you know praying for the people that are involved as i did that and then boom i see some of the growth and the changes and i'm like okay you know i'm, I'm gonna this is what i do this works this is working for me I'm so grateful to Mike and Carly for being vulnerable enough to share with us. Maybe this is just me, but I tend to think most white people, especially those of us old enough to remember the racism of the 60s and 70s, think things have gotten a lot better. 
And we recognize there is still a problem, but think it isn't as bad as it really is. I mean, listening to stories this past week changes that for me. In fact, a guy I did some leadership coaching with a few years ago woke up on Friday morning to discover his neighbor's SUV tires were slashed and the word nigger spray painted on the side. It's still bad. Last week, we talked about Isaiah, who was the prophet during Josiah's wicked grandfather's reign. In fact, Jewish tradition says the man of Josiah's grandfather executed the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 59, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. See, at its core, the Bible teaches the lack of justice of any kind, including racism, is fundamentally a heart issue that goes all the way back to creation. I loved how one of the black pastors I was listening to this last week put it. He said, you cannot have a cultural solution to a spiritual problem. But we tend to look to government and police and cultural leaders for the solution. Now, we certainly need to change culture and political things. That contributes to the issue. But when the first recorded murder happened in Genesis, when Cain murdered Abel, it was a heart issue that began with feelings of hostile anger and jealousy, a a fear of not being good enough or wanting to be superior. Racism is a sin of the heart that can only finally be changed with heart change. Which brings us back to the key to Josiah's reforms and the key to change for any any of us. Will you give your whole heart to God, trusting him to change you? Will you be obedient to do what you know God wants in love and justice, even when you don't have all the answers, so that God can give you more and change your heart even more deeply? See, the death of George Floyd is an outward expression of a sinful heart. We could take a police officer and put him through racial sensitivity training, how to deal with the emotions and his ideologies and Even if we change the color of his skin, if his heart doesn't change, the behavior stays the same. The solution is not external unity and marches or slogans, though hear me, those things are certainly a part of change. The only thing that will rid the earth of racism or any other kind of brutality or sin is the salvation of Jesus through which over time, because we follow him, meaning we obey him whether we feel like it or not, we let him change our hearts. Salvation doesn't change our hearts fully right away, but it puts each of us in right relationship with God, the one who can change our hearts and bring lasting change if we will follow him wholeheartedly. The solution is surrendering to the truth that God took our sin and he takes our hearts and he can give us a new clean heart. Only by his power and grace can hearts be changed and racism eradicated. With that said, we can still do things to cooperate with how God wants to show his love and restore justice. Things like we can tutor at-risk kids who have rarely heard how valuable they are and help them by the way we treat them know that they are tremendously valuable as God says they are. We can engage in service through the church and service through various community organizations that directly put us in relationship with people who are different than us in some way, whether by race or something else and work in those settings to affirm the value that all people, each person is made in the image of God equal. All of us can take time to compassionately listen and thereby participate in God healing pain and injustice through the power of listening and caring. Children, youth, allow me to speak directly to you for a moment. God is calling each and every one of you to be the Josiahs of your generation. Whether you are four years old or 18 years old, God is asking you to give your heart completely to him, to follow Jesus, love others like Jesus, 
and lead your friends and classmates to be loving and kind to one another by helping them know how much God loves them. God has called you to reach out and care for those who are made fun of and not accepted and make your own in crowd where everyone is in and valued and loved. That's our vision and God's vision for our children and youth ministry and youth group. The pain and questions you may feel from what is going on in our culture, if you just do those things, you will remove so much of that pain and find answers that the adults, even national leaders today, aren't able to find. Today I want to end by specifically praying for our next generation. If you are 30 or younger and are comfortable doing this, no pressure, just an invitation, please stand wherever you are. Older people, if you are around a younger person standing as a show of support, reach out your hand in the direction as we pray. Father, I pray that you would come to everyone standing right now. And I pray that you would pour your spirit out on them, that you would let them know that their life and their voice makes a difference. That you have gifted them and called them and placed leadership in their hearts for them to be the Josiahs of this generation, to rise up against all odds where problems cannot be solved and solve those problems because they follow you wholeheartedly and show love wholeheartedly to others. I pray that through them, that every youth and child in our community who feels unloved or unwanted would discover that they are loved and they are wanted because of the great generosity of their love. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would show us and teach us how to be the leaders and the followers of you that we're intended to be, that we would listen compassionately, that we would love graciously, that we would reach across all differences and we would bring healing, the racism and all other kinds of hatred would, would be eradicated from our family lines and from our community because of how we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.